Chapter One of In God's Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In God's Garden by Amy Steedman. Chapter One St. Ursula. Once upon a time in the land of Brittany, there lived a good king whose name was Theonatus. He had married a princess who was as good as she was beautiful, and they had one little daughter whom they called Ursula. It was a very happy and prosperous country over which Theonatus ruled, for he was a Christian, and governed both wisely and well. And nowhere was happiness more certain to be found than in the royal palace where the king and queen and the little princess Ursula lived. All went merrily until Ursula was fifteen years old and then a great trouble came, for the queen, her mother, died. The poor king was heartbroken, and for a long time even Ursula could not comfort him, but with patient tenderness she tried to do for him all that her mother had done, and gradually he began to feel that he still had something to live for. Her mother had taught Ursula with great care, and the little maid had loved her lessons, and so it came to pass that there was now no princess in all the world so learned as Princess Ursula. It is said that she knew all that had happened since the beginning of the world, all about the stars and the winds, all the poetry that had ever been written, and every science that learned men had ever known. But what was far better than all this learning was that the princess was humble and good. She never thought herself wiser than other people, and her chief pleasure was in doing kind things and helping others. Her father called her the light of his eyes, and his one fear was that she would some day marry and leave him alone. And true it was that many princes wished to marry Ursula, for the fame of her beauty and of her learning had spread to far distant lands. Now on the other side of the sea, not very far from Brittany, there was a country called England, the people there were strong and powerful, but they had not yet learned to be Christians. The king of that land had an only son called Colnan, who was as handsome as he was brave, and when his father heard of the fame of the Princess Ursula, he made up his mind that she should be his son's wife. So he sent a great company of nobles and ambassadors to the court of Brittany to ask King Theonatus for the hand of the Princess Ursula. The king received the messengers most courteously, but he was very much troubled and perplexed at the request. He did not want to part with Ursula, and he knew she did not wish to marry and leave him. And yet he scarcely dared offend the powerful king of England, who might be such a dangerous enemy. So to gain time he told the messengers he would give them their answer next day, and then he shut himself up in his room and sorrowfully leaned his head upon his hand, as he tried to think what was best to be done. But as he sat there thinking, the door opened, and Ursula came in. "'Why are thou so sad, my father?' she asked. "'And what is that that troubleth thee so greatly?' "'I have this day received an offer for thy hand,' answered her father sadly. "'And the messengers are even now here.' and because they come from the king of England, I dare not refuse their request, and yet I know not what answer to give them when they return in the morning. If that is all, do not trouble thyself, dear father, answered Ursula. I myself will answer the messengers, and all will be well. Then the princess left her father, and went to her own room, that she might consider what answer might be wisest to send. 
but the more she thought, the more troubled she became, until at last she grew so weary that she took off her crown and placed it as usual at the foot of her bed and prepared to go to rest. Her little dog lay guarding her, and she slept calmly and peacefully until she dreamed a dream which seemed almost like a vision for she thought she saw a bright light shining through the door, and through the light an angel coming towards her, who spoke to her and said, Trouble not thyself, Ursula, for to-morrow thou shalt know what answer thou shalt give. God has need of thee to save many souls, and though this prince doth offer thee an earthly crown, God has an unfading crown of heavenly beauty laid up for thee, which thou shalt win through much suffering. So the next morning, when the messengers came to the great hall to receive their answer, they saw the Princess Ursula herself sitting on the throne next to her father. She was so beautiful, and greeted them so graciously, that they longed more than ever that their prince might win her for his bride. And as they listened for the king to speak, it was Ursula's voice that fell on their ears. She began by sending her greeting to the King of England and to Prince Conan, his son and bade the messengers say that the honour offered her was more than she deserved, but since their choice had fallen upon her, she, on her side, was ready to accept the prince as her promised husband, if he would agree to three conditions. And first, went on Ursula, leaning forward and speaking very clearly and slowly, so that the foreign ambassadors might understand every word, I would have the prince, your master, send to me ten of the noblest ladies of your land to be my companions and friends, and for each of these ladies, and for myself, a thousand maidens to wait upon us. Secondly, he must give me three years before the date of my marriage, so that I and these noble ladies may have time to serve God by visiting the shrines of the saints in distant lands. And thirdly, I ask that the prince and all his court shall accept the true faith and be baptized Christians, for I cannot wed even so great and perfect a prince if he not be as perfect a Christian. Then Ursula stopped speaking, and the ambassadors bowed low before her beauty and wisdom, and went to take her answer to their king. Now Ursula did not make these conditions without a purpose, for in her heart she thought that surely the prince would not agree to such demands and she would still be free. But even if he did all that she had asked, it would surely fulfill the purpose of her dream, and she would save these eleven thousand maidens, and teach them to serve and honour God. Ere long the ambassadors arrived safely in England, and went to report their mission to the king. They could not say enough about the perfections of this wonderful princess of Brittany. She was as fair and straight as a lily, her rippling hair was golden as the sunshine, and her eyes like shining stars. The pearls that decked her bodice were not as fair as the whiteness of her throat, and her walk, and every gesture, was so full of grace that it clearly showed she was born to be a queen. And if the outside was so fair, words failed them when they would describe her wisdom and learning, her good deeds and kind actions. The king, as he listened to his nobles, felt that no conditions could be too hard that would secure such a princess for his son, and as for the prince himself, his only desire was to have her wishes fulfilled as quickly as possible, so that he might set sail for Brittany and see with his own eyes this beautiful princess who had promised to be his bride. 
So letters were sent north, south, east, and west, to France and Scotland and Cornwall, wherever there were vassals of England to be found, bidding all knights and nobles to send their daughters to court with their attendant maidens, the fairest and noblest of the land. All were to be arrayed in the finest and costliest raiment, and most precious jewels, so that they might be deemed fit companions for the Princess Ursula, who was to wed Prince Conan, their liege lord. Then the knights and nobles sent all their fairest maidens, and so eager were they to do as the king desired, that very soon ten of the noblest maidens, each with a thousand attendants and another thousand for the Princess Ursula, were ready to start for the court of Brittany. Never before was seen such a fair sight as when all these maidens went out to meet the Princess Ursula, but the fairest of all was the Princess herself, as she stood to receive her guests. For the light of love shone in her eyes, and to each she gave a welcome as tender as if they had all been her own sisters. It seemed a glorious thing to think they were all to serve God together, and no longer to live the life of mere pleasure and vanity. As may well be believed, the fame of these fair maidens spread far and near, and all the nobles and barons crowded to the court to see the sight that all the world talked about. But Ursula and her maidens paid no heed to the gay courtiers, having other matters to think upon. For when the soft spring weather was come, Ursula gathered all her companions together and led them to a green meadow outside the city, through which a clear stream flowed. The grass was starred with daisies and buttercups, and the sweet scent of the lime-blossoms hung in the air, a fitting bower for those living flowers that gathered there that day. In the midst of the meadow there was a throne, and there the princess sat, and with words of wonderful power she told her companions the story of God's love, and of the coming of our blessed Lord, and showed them what the beauty of a life lived for Him might be. And the faces of the listening maidens shone with a glory that was more than earthly, as they, with one accord, promised to follow the Princess Ursula wherever she might lead, if only she would help them to live the blessed life, so that they too might win the heavenly crown. Then Ursula descended from her throne, and talked with each of the maidens, and those who had not yet been baptized she led through the flowery meadow to the banks of the stream, and there a priest baptized them, while the birds joined in the hymn of praise sung by the whole company. But all this while the Prince Conan waited with no little impatience for news of Ursula. He had been baptized and joined the Christian faith. He had sent the companions she desired, and now he waited for her to fulfill her promise. And ere long a letter reached him written round and fair in the princess's own handwriting, telling him that as he had so well fulfilled her conditions, and was now her own true knight, she gave him permission to come to her father's court, that they might meet and learn to know each other. It was but little time that Prince Conan lost before he set sail for Brittany. The great warships made a prosperous voyage over the sea that parted the two countries, and came sailing majestically into the harbor of Brittany, where the people had gathered in crowds to see the young prince who had come to woo their fair princess. From every window gay carpets were hung, and the town was all in holiday, as Ursula stood on the landing-place, the first to greet the prince as he stepped ashore, 
and all that Conan had heard of her seemed as nothing compared to the reality, as she stood before him in her great beauty, and welcomed him with gentle courtesy. And he grew to love her so truly, that he was willing to do in all things as she wished, though he longed for the three years to be over, that he might carry her off to England and make her his queen. But Ursula told the prince of the vision that had come to her in her dream, when the angel had said she must first go through much suffering, and visit the shrines of saints in distant lands, and she told him she could not be happy unless he granted her these three years in which to serve God, and begged him meanwhile to stay with her father and comfort him while she was gone. So Ursula set out with her eleven thousand maidens, and the city was left very desolate and forlorn. But the pilgrims were happy as they sailed away over the sea, for they were doing the angel's bidding, and they feared nothing, for they trusted that God would protect and help them. At first the winds were contrary, and they were driven far out of their course, so that instead of arriving at Rome, which was the place they had meant to go, they were obliged to land at a city called Cologne, where the barbarous Germans lived. Here, while they were resting for a little, another dream was sent to Ursula, and the angel told her that in this very place, on their return, she and all her maidens would suffer death and win their heavenly crowns. This did not affright the princess and her companions, but rather made them rejoice that they should be found worthy to die for their faith. So they sailed on up the river Rhine, till they could go no further, and they landed at the town of Basel, determined to do the rest of their pilgrimage on foot. It was a long and tedious journey over the mountains to Italy, and the tender feet of these pilgrims might have found it impossible to climb the rough road, had not God sent six angels to help them on their way, to smooth over the rough places, and to help them in all dangers so that no harm could befall them. First they journeyed past the great lakes where the snow-capped mountains towered in their white glory, then up the mountain road, ever higher and higher, where the glaciers threatened to sweep down upon them, and the path was crossed by fierce mountain torrents. But before long they began to descend the further side, and the snow melted in patches, and the green grass appeared. Then followed stretches of flowery meadow-land, where the soft southern air whispered to them of the land of sunshine, fruit, and flowers. Lower down came the little sun-baked Italian villages, and the simple, kindly people who were eager to help the company of maidens in every way, and gazed upon them with reverence when they knew they were on a pilgrimage to Rome. Thus the pilgrims went onward until at length they came to the river Tiber, and entered the city of Rome, where were the shrines of St. Peter and St. Paul. Now the bishop of Rome, whom men call the Pope, was much troubled when it was told him that a company of eleven thousand fair women had entered his city. He could not understand what it might mean, and was inclined to fear it might be a temptation of the evil one. So he went out to meet them, taking with him all his clergy in a great procession, chanting their hymns as they went. And soon the two processions met, and what was the amazement and joy of the Pope when a beautiful maiden came and knelt before him, and asked for his blessing, telling him why she and her companions had come to Rome. "'Most willingly do I give thee my blessing,' answered the old man, "'and bid thee and thy companions welcome to my city, 
My servants shall put up tents for you all, in some quiet spot, and you shall have the best that Rome can afford. So the maidens rested there in quiet happiness, thankful to have come to the end of their pilgrimage, and to have reached the shrines of God's great saints. But to Ursula an added joy was sent, which made her happiness complete. For the prince whom she had left behind grew impatient of her long absence, and the longing for his princess grew so strong he felt that he could not stay quietly at home, not knowing where she was, nor what had befallen her. So he had set out and journeyed by a different route, had arrived in Rome the same day as Ursula and her maidens were received by the good bishop. It is easy to picture the delight of Conan and Ursula when they met together again, and knelt hand in hand to receive the Pope's blessing, and when Ursula told him all that had happened, and of the angels whom God had sent to guide and protect them, the only desire the prince had was to share her pilgrimage, and be near her when danger threatened, and his purpose only became stronger when she told him of the vision she had had in the city of Cologne. "'How can I leave thee, my princess?' he asked, "'when I have but now found thee. Life holds no pleasure when thou art absent. The days are gray and sunless without the sunshine of thy presence. Bid me come with thee and share thy dangers. And if it be, as thou sayest, that it is God's will that thou and all these maidens shall pass through suffering and death for his sake, then let me too win the heavenly crown, that we may praise God together in that country where sorrow and separation can touch us no more. And Ursula was glad to think that, through love of her, the prince should be led to love God, and so granted his request, and bade her companions prepare to set out once more. The Pope would fain have persuaded them to stop longer in Rome, but Ursula told him of her vision, and how it was time to return as the dream had warned her. Then the Pope and his clergy made up their minds to join the pilgrimage also, that they too might honor God by a martyr's death. Now there were in Rome at that time two great Roman captains who were cruel heathens, and who looked upon this pilgrimage with alarm and anger. They commanded all the imperial troops in the northern country of Germany, and when they heard that Ursula and her maidens were bound for Cologne, they were filled with dismay and wrath, for they said to each other, If so many good and beautiful women should reach that heathen land, the men there will be captivated by their beauty and wish to marry them. Then, of course, they will all become Christians, and the whole nation will be won over to this new religion. We cannot suffer this, was the answer. Come, let us think of some way to prevent so great a misfortune that would destroy all our power in Germany. So these two wicked heathen captains agreed to send a letter to the king of the Huns, a fierce savage, who was just then besieging Cologne. In it they told him that thousands of fair women in a great company were on their way to help the city, and if they were allowed to enter, all chances of victory for his army would vanish. There was but one thing to be done, and that was to kill the entire band of maidens the moment they arrived. Meanwhile Ursula and her companions had set sail for Cologne, and with them were now Prince Conan and his knights, and the Pope with many bishops and cardinals, and after many days of danger and adventure, the pilgrims arrived at the city of Cologne. The army of barbarians, who were encamped before the city, was amazed to see such a strange company landing from the ships, for first there came the eleven thousand maidens, 
then a company of young unarmed knights, then a procession of old men, richly robed and bearing no weapons of any kind. For a moment the savage soldiers stood still in amazement, but then, remembering the orders they had received in the letter from the Roman captains, they rushed upon the defenseless strangers and began to slay them without mercy. Prince Conan was the first to fall, pierced by an arrow, at the feet of his princess. Then the knights were slain, and the pope with all his clergy. Again the savage soldiers paused, and then, like a pack of wolves, they fell upon the gentle maidens, and these spotless white lambs were slain by thousands. And in their midst, brave and fearless, was the Princess Ursula, speaking cheerful words of comfort to the dying, and bidding one and all rejoice and look forward to the happy meeting in the heavenly country. So great was her beauty and courage, that even those wicked soldiers dared not touch her, and at last, when their savage work was done, they took her before their prince, that he might decide her fate. Never before had Ursula's beauty shone forth more wonderfully than it did that day when she stood among these savage men, and gazed with steadfast eyes upon the prince, as one might look upon a wild beast. The prince was amazed and enchanted, for he had never seen so lovely a maid in his life before, and he motioned to the soldiers to bring Ursula nearer to him. "'Do not weep, fair maiden,' he said, trying to speak in his gentlest voice. "'For though you have lost all your companions, you will not be alone. I will be your husband, and you shall be the greatest queen in Germany.' Then most proudly did Ursula draw herself up, and her clear eyes shone with scorn as she answered, "'Does it indeed seem to thee as though I wept? And canst thou believe that I would live, when all my dear ones have been slain by thee?' thou cruel coward, slayer of defenceless women and unarmed men. And when the proud prince heard these scornful words, he fell into a furious rage, and bending the bow that was in his hand, he shot three arrows through the heart of Princess Ursula, and killed her instantly. So the pure soul went to join the companions of her pilgrimage, and to receive the crown of life which the angel of her dream had promised her and for which she had laid down her earthly crown as gladly as when in her peaceful home she laid it aside before she went to rest. End of chapter 1